This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Well, we've been teaching for the last several weeks on uh, how to be led by the Holy Spirit. And we've used certain text scriptures, and we'll use those again this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us the makeup of man. Paul said, as he's inspired by the Holy Ghost, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Paul says that this is the wholeness or the whole, the, the completeness of man, he's saying this is man's total makeup. It tells us how man is made. You remember in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our own image. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the Bible says after, man's, uh, after God's likeness and in his image, he was made. Well, likeness and image must be different things. Otherwise, why would it say it twice? Now, likeness and image means uh, one translation says instead of likeness, it says sameness. In other words, God made man as close to himself as he possibly could. And the angels were astonished when he did so. The Bible says in Psalms that the angels looked at the creation and says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? So man was made in a different class of being than the angels. If not, then the angels wouldn't have been astonished at this. Man was a totally new creature, a totally new creation. Well, the reason that he was new and the reason that he was something that was shocking to the angels was because he was made in the image or the likeness of God. He was made in the same class of being as God himself. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit. If man is made in the image or the sameness of God, then by necessity, by definition, man would have to be a spirit being. Well, that's what the Holy Ghost is telling us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God he's coming again. I believe he's coming soon. But it tells us the makeup of man, spirit, soul, and body. We say it this way sometimes for clarity. Man is a spirit being. He has a soul or he possesses a soul, and he lives in a body. Now, you don't hear this verse of Scripture referred to very often, but when you do in church circles, most people do it backwards. Most people quote it backwards, body, soul, and spirit. And the reason for that is because most people, most Christians are more body conscious than they are anything else. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us a little bit about being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words, it's telling us that every child of God has a right, I believe a responsibility, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 tells you how that's going to happen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, not our bodies, and not our minds, which would be a part of the soul. But the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. In other words, the Bible is telling us that there's one and uh, and one primary way, one main way that the Holy Ghost will lead you, and that's through your spirit, bearing witness with your spirit. If we don't know we're spirit beings, if we're not conscious of what it uh, what constitutes spiritual direction or spiritual guidance, then how are we going to know how to be effectively led by the Holy Ghost? 
Spirit of God, the Bible says in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. One translation says he'll guide you into all reality. Well, Jesus said in praying in John chapter 17, before he went to the cross, he said, sanctify them, meaning the church, not only the disciples that he had at the time, but for for all of those that will believe on Jesus through their word, which is everybody that's saved. He said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So if the Holy Ghost is going to guide you into the truth and the word is truth, he's going to guide you into the word. But he's going to do that from your spirit. He's going to do that from your spirit. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 is our third text scripture, our third opening for the text scripture. And that is, it says this, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. One translation says light or lamp of the Lord. It was the only means of, of uh, illumination that they had in the day that it was written. It was a means whereby you could find your way in the dark. It was a means whereby you could see something revealed that you would not otherwise know was there. And that's what it's talking about. It says the spirit of man, not the body of man and not the soul of man, is the candle of the Lord. God uses your spirit to enlighten you. God uses your spirit to reveal himself to you. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now turn with me over to John chapter 3. Let me show you something here. I've got about six different uh, avenues that I want to go this morning, and I can't go to all of them, at least not in the time that we have. So we'll just start down one path and see where we come out. John chapter 3 tells us about uh, a man named Nicodemus. And the Bible says that he was a ruler of the Jews. Verse 1 says he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what that means is he was the ruler of the synagogue. He was one of the Jewish leaders. He may have been one of the Pharisees. He may have been one of the council that uh, was responsible for taking Jesus captive and crucifying him. But at, at, at any rate, what we know for sure is that Nicodemus was taught in the Old Testament, what we know of as the Old Testament, the law of Moses and the prophets. He knew what the Bible said about the Messiah to come. And he comes to to Jesus by night. He was afraid of the other uh, members of the council, I guess. And it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know. Now notice what it says in verse 2. Notice what Nicodemus says he knows. Master or rabbi. We know that thou art a teacher come from God for because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, what is he saying? He's saying we know you're from God because you're operating on on a different plane and a different level than anybody has ever done before. We know that you've got to be from God because of the things that we're seeing take place, the miracles and the signs and wonders and the healings and so forth, all of those things that are taking place in front, of our, in front of our eyes, that we're witnessing with our own two eyes, can't be done naturally. In other words, he says, we know you come from God because you're doing spiritual things that are spectacular in our, in our uh, vision, point of view. In other words, whether he knows it or not, what he's saying is, you're operating from a different plane, a different dimension than anybody has ever done before. That's got to be God. He's not saying we know you come from God because you're the strongest man we've ever seen. 
He's not saying we know you come from God because you're the smartest guy we've ever seen. He's not saying we know you've come from God because of some natural circumstance that takes place every time you come into the uh, come down the road. I mean, it's not like he's snow white and birds sing and follow him through the woods and all that kind of stuff. Now, that's not what's causing them to know that he's from God. What's causing them to know that he's from God is that there's supernatural, even spectacular power at work through Jesus. Where's that come from? All he knows is God. All he knows is from God. So, folks, please understand, unless people have changed from that time to now, people recognize God by miracles. Now, since God knows that people don't change, why would he want it to be different for the people of God to be recognized? Why would he want them to be recognized in a different way than Jesus was recognized? God's still a miracle-working God. Miracles are still available to us today. Now, what does Jesus say? Verse 3. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I have one question for you that I want you to consider very carefully. Has Jesus changed the subject? If he has, then Nicodemus has every right to go to his friends and say, you know, I went to Jesus and I said, those miracles you're doing, we know you're sent from God. But let me tell you something. These faith preachers are weird. Because he didn't even answer my question. He started talking about something about being born again. Folks, I would submit to you, Jesus has not changed the subject. What he's saying is, this is the entrance to that spiritual and even spectacular, even miraculous plane that you're recognizing that I'm operating from. Now, again, think about what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, you act differently than anybody we've ever seen. Well, what's different about Jesus? He's operating from his spirit. He's operating from his spirit. He's operating from the Holy Ghost, the power of God on the inside of him, and not just as a natural man. Now, folks, we could spend all morning long talking about this, and, and it would be uh, it'd be worthwhile in one sense, but it would be counterproductive to the point of the message this morning. But please understand that in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself of any power and glory he had with the Father before he came to the earth. In other words, Jesus is not operating as the Son of God. He can't be. If he was operating as the Son of God, why did he have to be anointed by the Holy Ghost when John baptized him in the Jordan River? And not only that, this is the real kicker for me. If Jesus is here on the earth operating as the Son of God, now don't get me wrong, he is the Son of God. Was then, is now. But if he's operating on the earth as the Son of God, who can anoint God? That would mean there's one greater than God that is able to anoint him. Well, then how was Jesus able to be anointed? Because he came to the earth, the Bible says, and he operated as a man, as a human being. And until the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily shape as a dove, when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, he had no more ability to do a miracle than you did. And folks, if that's not true, then it's impossible for what Jesus said to be reality. It's impossible for what Jesus said about the works that I do shall you do also to be done. 
The only way those works could be done is if he's operating as a man who's anointed by the Holy Ghost. Because man can now be anointed by the Holy Ghost today. But if he's saying, if the Bible is teaching us that Jesus is doing miracles because he's the Son of God, how is anybody going to do the miracles of the Son of God? It's impossible. So the very fact that he tells his disciples, and you and me too, the works that I do show you do also, and even greater works than these, greater works. I'm not sure what the greater works are. But he said, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. If he's doing those works and miracles here on the earth because he's the Son of God, it's impossible for anybody to do anything greater than him. Wouldn't that be true? It would have to be. So what is the answer? The answer is Jesus is a man operating under the power of the Holy Ghost, just like man can operate under the power of the Holy Ghost today. So back to Nicodemus and his quandary. He says, we know that you've come from God because of the miracles. And Jesus, not changing the subject, tells him, this is the source of the miracles. You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, folks, remember, Nicodemus has been trained in the law law and the prophets. He may have the same training that Paul had. He may have the same training that the high priest had. We know he's had extensive training at the very least because he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's a member of the Pharisaical council. So we know he has extensive training in the Old Testament, and he's baffled by this concept. He starts thinking naturally. He says, can a man be born again? Can he enter back into his mother's womb and be born the second time? See, he's thinking naturally. Jesus is talking spiritual things, and Nicodemus is thinking naturally. And Jesus says... That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what's he saying? He's saying the new birth is a spiritual birth. He's saying that the necessity for mankind is a spiritual rebirth. Christmas is a special time here at Foothill Family Church. I want to especially invite you to our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We have a chance to celebrate when Jesus came to the earth to be our Savior. Come join us this Christmas Eve. Again, that's the Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 p.m. December 24th at Foothill Family Church. For more information, go to www.mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Your problem before you got saved was not that you were a sinner. Well, then what was my problem? The Bible tells you in Acts chapter, or in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice it says, after it tells us about Jesus and his work on the cross, and you hath he quickened. The word quickened means to make alive. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Folks, the problem with mankind, unsaved man, is not trespasses and sins. The problem is they're dead. In other words, the problem is spiritual death, not sinners. A sinner sins because he's spiritually dead. So the issue is not the sins. The issue is spiritual death. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Well, what things passed away and what things became new? 
Your appearance doesn't change when you get born again, does it? If you have brown hair before you get saved, you have brown hair after you get saved. If you have no hair before you get saved, you still have no hair after you get saved. It's not physical things that change. It's not physical things that become new. Well, what about mental things? What about things of the soul? Your emotions don't change. Your intellect doesn't change. As a matter of fact, it might be enhanced. But if you have an interest in sports before you get saved, you have the same interest in sports after you get saved. If you have an aptitude, a special aptitude in math before you get saved, that same aptitude in math is there afterwards. Again, it may be even enhanced by the life of God inside of you. So it's not mental things. It's not things of the soul that are changed. It's not things of the body that are changed. Well, there's only one other part of man that could be changed. The spirit of man is made new. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You must be born again. Jesus does not say to Nicodemus, here's the problem. You've got to quit sinning. No, he says you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, what takes place as a result of being born again? Well, John said it this way. First John chapter 3 and verse 14, he said, we know. Everybody say we know. He didn't say we think so. He didn't say we hope so. He said we know that we passed from death to life. Death to life. You remember in uh, the Garden of Eden when God put Adam and Eve in the middle of things? And he says, you can eat of every fruit of the tree. Everything is here for you. But there's one that you're commanded not to eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, he can't be talking about physical death. The problem with most of the church world is whenever we read the word death in the Bible, we think physical death. And very seldom is the Bible talking about physical death when it uses the word death. They didn't die physically. They didn't die. For, Adam didn't die for 930 years after he ate of the fruit of the tree. We don't know how long he was in the Garden of Eden before he ate of the fruit of the tree. But at the point that he ate and man fell, at the point he spiritually died, we start, time begins. The counting of time began at that point. And the Bible says that Adam lived to be 930 years. It took 930 years for physical death to overtake the man that was created in the image of God. The man who was made spiritually alive when he was created. Folks, let me ask you a question. Who's got a greater sense of life or a greater measure of life, Adam when he was created in the beginning? Or you and me who have been born again by the Spirit of God? You've got more than Adam had. Now, don't think I'm saying everybody can live to be 930. God put a limit on things after a while. Even God said, I'm tired of man living so long. We're going to have to cut this back. But even at that, he gave us 120 to 150 years. Do you know medical science can't figure out why the body wears out before 120 years old? They have determined, they have concluded through their tests that the human body is made to withstand normal wear and tear of 120 years here on the earth. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. So John said, we have passed from death to life. We know we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Folks, you need to realize something. Eternal life is not just freedom from sin. Eternal life is the rebirth or the recreation of the human spirit. That's such an important point. Because so much of the church world just thinks the new birth or eternal life is about freedom from sin. It's about eternal life. 
Now, the rest of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, this one will blow your mind if you think from a natural standpoint. John said, we know that we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. The evidence that we passed from spiritual death into eternal life is the love of God in our heart for other people. Then the rest of the verse, the last part of the verse says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, to abide means to remain or to live. So he's saying, if you don't love your brother, you're living in death. What does he mean? He can't be talking about physical life. He's talking about uh, uh, remaining or abiding in spiritual death. Let me show you how this works. Turn back with me to Ephesians, uh, to, uh, what's his name? Ezekiel, chapter 36. You know those six paths I told you I was going down? Or had a desire to go? Here's another one. Here's a new one. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to see what Ezekiel prophesied about the new birth. About passing from spiritual death into spiritual life. So here's how it works. According to the Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's start reading in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water. God speaking first person. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness. And from all of your idols will I cleanse you. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about being saved by the washing of the water by the word. Ephesians chapter 5 says that that's what Jesus does to the church. He washes it with the water of the word. Peter said that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. In other words, he's saying this is the cleansing that takes place. Now notice the terminology that he uses. This is the cleansing that takes place. It's through the water of the word. In other words, the power of the word of God. Don't think water like we use the term naturally. He's saying we're sprinkled or cleansed by the power of God's word. Now, how does that work? Well, remember what Romans 10, 9 and 10 say. It says, if, you, if thou shalt believe in thine heart that, God is, that uh, Jesus died on the cross and that God has raised him from the dead and shall confess him with your mouth as Lord and Savior, you shall be saved. So what's the power of the word? That saves us. The confession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The confession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Now folks I want you to understand something. The power of the word that saves you doesn't come from God. It comes from you. God's the one that gave us the truth. And the record of the truth of what Jesus did. But unless you choose to speak something from your heart. From the inside of you. From the spirit being that you've been made then nothing changes. But should you choose to do that, and most of us have here, maybe all of us have, but when we chose to do that, the power of the word was sufficient to change us from a spiritually dead being to a spiritually alive being. The greatest miracle that can occur is the the new birth. Now, but because we think naturally, we get hung up on things. We think, well, yeah, I'm born again, but I have, I have need of healing in my body. God, why can't you do a miracle in my body? He's already done the greatest miracle that there is and changed you spiritually. He made you a new creature, a new creation. Miracles in the flesh, miracles in the natural realm should be easy if we understand the miracles that have already taken place. And the power of the word that brought them about. Are you out there? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
So he said, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, meaning the word of God, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. Now notice what that new birth does. Verse 26, a new heart. Whenever the word is used in the Bible, most of the time at least, when the word used, heart, when the word heart is used in the Bible, it's talking about the spirit of man. A new heart or a new spirit also will I give you. And a new spirit, you can see he's talking about a spirit here. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, he says, I'll take away the hard heart from you, the spiritually dead heart out of you, the spiritually dead spirit, the spirit that's dead to God because he's separated from me. I'll replace that with a new spirit that's tender and open to the things of God. Now keep that in mind, the stony heart. Keep that in mind because in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was written or the Ten Commandments were written on the tables of stone. That has a spiritual significance, folks. Nowadays, they're not written on tables of stone. They're written in our hearts, in our spirits. A new heart will I also give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. God's saying, I'll put my spirit inside that new spirit that I create. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied about the new birth. Verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Couldn't be that way under the old covenant. Couldn't be that way. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. There's the spirit. The spirit is the inward part of man. And write it in their hearts and it will be their God and they shall be my people. Now notice what the result is in verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me. Notice the new spirit and the law of God written in your heart causes an inward knowing. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're the children of God. An inward knowing of Jesus and the Lord. The Bible says in, uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about um, uh, good sh- being the good shepherd and so forth. He said, uh, my sheep hear and know my voice and a stranger they'll not follow for they know not the voice of the strangers. Now, most people read those ver- verses of scripture and they think about hearing or listening to the voice of God. And they're searching for something that they can hear with their natural ears. And as a result, a lot of people get pulled away into thinking the circumstances are determined uh, by, by God and, and that circumstances show you which way God wants to lead you in life. And nothing could be farther from the truth. No, he doesn't say that my people shall hear my voice, meaning from the physical ear. He said it's an inward knowing of the voice of God, the inward witness. My sheep hear and know my voice. Many people get upset and discouraged because they don't think God is speaking to them. When all the time he's trying to bear witness with our spirits as to what his plan for our life really is. As we develop our sensitivity in spirit 
to hear His voice and follow that inward witness, then we know for sure His plan for our lives. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. How's that going to help? Folks, I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. But He does, and He's got a way out. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God cannot fail. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.